0: Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. I am not Nate. That's his line. It always makes me laugh when I say it because I don't do it as well. There's already disappointed people. But today, as both, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. As both a guest and the co-host, we've brought in another Nate. Because damn it, how can you listen to this podcast and not have a Nate? So we've got Nate Geyer here from Colorado. Welcome, co-host and guest combined with a slash in the middle. Nate, how you doing?
1: I'm well, man. Thanks for the introduction. It's uh I always like to be a member of the Nate tribe, so <laughs> You know, consolation prize for the listeners out there, but uh, I'll do my best to fill the Nate role.
0: I I will say there's certain names everybody has that's like a bully from elementary school or whatever. They're like, I could never name my child this. And I feel like Nates in my life have either been anywhere from neutral to positive. I have not known many Nates that are just dicks. (laughs) So... Now I'm, I'm kind of curious, which which name would you never name a child? Come on. Oh, gosh. Uh, Escobar seems to be <laughs> a very good villain that, name. That, right. feels, that feels really safe. Right up there with Adolf. Most people not wow. naming kids <laughs> Adolf. <laughs> not anymore. I don't know. I don't know if mm-hmm. it was popular at some point. So where did you grow up? in Around Boulder or mm-hmm. you moved all around the state?
1: So it's, it's funny. It's a running joke of my family. We've lived and moved up and down the same street for about 25 years. <laughs> and it's just been up and down the same street on Kipling, uh, right in the heart of Lakewood, uh, which is a little suburb outside of Denver. But I left the nest uh, when I was 18 and I moved to Boulder, lived there for about 10 years. Um, loved every second of it you know there's a there's a nice hippie part of me that i like to think is (laughs) is there and uh um it's it's lovingly referred to as the republic of boulder so you know if that's any indication there
0: okay so i mean this is this is hey this is our intro time you're the co-host but i'm curious because one of the first times i really hung out by myself I got stranded for about seven hours in Monument. That's Dude. a place, right? hmm uh-huh. Okay. So N- Nate had told me like, hey, there's this brewery there. You can just go work and hang out. And I thought, okay, I'll go get work done. But then I was so fascinated by the people because I grew up in a very hippie area of California. Uh, and the great. people there were this weird combination of like, California hippie, but then also kind of a little blue collar, like a little rougher. It was a weird combination of a lot of things, but also intellectual. So, is that what you mean by the hippie part of you? I would say,
1: yeah. You know, I don't know. Uh, I think there is a specific Boulder type hippie, you know, like um, our hippies, right? They're, um, they're very they'll quote Voltaire to you
0: Uh-huh.
1: and then um they'll ask you about Birkenstocks and then they'll ask you about regular stocks and then they'll go
0: <laughs> from Birkenstocks to regular stocks that's amazing
1: yeah we uh we got a good uh good community though like that's what I really like about our um uh, our city is it's um It has a real sort of spectrum of people, you know, like you get young folks up here who are going to school, you know, Boulder is um, a big college town. So you bring in a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different experiences that sort of meshes in with a little bit of actually an older crowd. Um, So it's kind of like this East meets West of of philosophy, young blood, old crowd, old Mm -hmm. school. So. Um, it's a, it's a cool place where all that meets together, um, in really interesting ways. It's very intellectual, um, which I really enjoy being a part of, um, and experience in that life too.
0: But going back to what you just said, it's Birkenstock intellectual <laughs> yeah. where it's, it's people who, man, living in university circles for a long time there's a certain type of intellectualism that Mm -hmm. it feels like do you actually believe this or are we just (laughs) but what what are are we reading off a script right now because i wanted to have fun but growing up with the birkenstock hippies we're just now just throwing out stereotypes left and right but i don't care (laughs) but i always loved having those conversations because it was deeply personal to them Mm -hmm. It was intellectual, but it it tied into their hearts, not just ideals disconnected from life.
1: Bingo. I think that's huge. Mm -hmm.
0: And Mm -hmm. I love that. All right, so take us back. Give us your story. The new Nate story. (laughs) Sorry, you're just going to be the new Nate now. I feel like I'm apologizing about a lot today. Uh, Take us back to growing up. Uh, how you came to a place where therapy and uh, engaging your own heart and your own story and learning how that was so important. Uh, I mean, there's, there's certain things I'm going to bring up a little later. I don't want to tip my hand, but give me the story before you ever knew this would be your trajectory in Hippie Boulder.
1: (laughs) You know, uh, the word story is really interesting. Like, I've really thought about my my life and trying to understand the story that I, I've told myself about mm-hmm. who I was and the story that I was living. You know, the story of, of reality in, in and of itself. So, I've always tried to f- make sense of that. And why was I telling myself a certain story and believing about it when it didn't necessarily match the reality I was experiencing?
0: And right it Pause. When you're saying that, I'm tracking, but what age are you talking about that you started telling yourself some kind of story? That's a good one. Um,
1: I would say I started telling myself stories about who I was around four.
0: Whoa. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Now I'm very curious. That was an so, unexpected age.
1: <laughs> um, so around about four or five, you know, I um, my second brother was born. And my dad was full time, you know, very working a lot, a lot of time spent just trying to make ends meet. He really adopted a provider role. So it was just me and my mom. And I grew up uh, alongside my mom for a long time. And when my brother came, it was a really common thing for my mom to say, be a good boy and help me do this. Be a good boy and take care of your brother. Be a good boy and be quiet. Be a good boy. And it just started to trend down towards this. If I'm not a good boy, then what am I? Right? If I don't do these things or if I can't make that, um, say, connection um, with either my mom or, or with my brothers, you know, um, who would I be, you know? And so the gaps in that storyline started to be filled in by different parts of me to make sense of the story. You know, if I'm not a, if I'm a good boy and I didn't do this, does this mean I'm a bad boy? You know, does this right. mean that, um, you know, I didn't do something good here?
0: So let I start, me, let me ask you a question about that yeah. because I know it's so different for different people. That statement, "Be a good boy and do this," is also a great way to shortcut do not even ask me don't don't push back if you push back and say mother i see that you need help but i'm also six and i would like to finish making my lego thing so there's no like pushback. if you push back it puts you in that category was that part of it not just oh i have to perform to be the good boy what would i be if i didn't does that make me a bad boy but also i have to stay silent and i can't say wait, this isn't, something's not fitting. I certainly can't explain it at four or five, six, Mm -hmm. but I have no voice. How, how did that work for you and your personality? That's a very personality driven question.
1: And you actually hit on part of what I actually ended up creating a story around, right? To that point, when I would bring things that would say, contradict that story or, um, I use my voice in a way it was routinely meant as like kids are are not talked to you know kids aren't mm-hmm. the voices aren't necessarily here the adults are speaking in the room so one of my oldest negative cognitions that became a part of my story was like I'm just scenery here like I'm just I'm just meant to do things for other people and if I tune out enough right then. I'll just become kind of like a plant in the room and I'm still there. I'm still kind of nurtured in a way, but I'm not rocking the boat. I'm not bringing flak down and I'm certainly not a burden. I became sort of really conscious of this. If I can't do these things, I don't want to add on to my parents' plate. I don't want to add on to anybody else's plate. Um, That burden mentality really got ingrained in me pretty early. I would say even this six to seven year old, because- on my shoulders, I ended up becoming this, um, I was the oldest son in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm. there's that performance aspect to it. There's this, um, fitting what the mold is for an oldest son. Um, and there's this responsibility not to add on more pressure to this, this family that I was in not to add on more stress to this. And if I could make myself more a scenery ask, then i'm certainly doing that but guess who gets cut out by that guess who gets sort of
0: yeah you disappear mm-hmm. okay but okay there's an obvious th- at least three questions that i'm i'm picturing that I'm a very visual person i don't know what you looked like at 4 to 7 but i'm picturing you and you also look like a ficus uh, yes. but <laughs> you're a cute ficus <laughs> at 7 mm-hmm. first off I, I just want to pause to say it sounds like your dad was working hard and doing his best, although things seem to have skewed a certain way, created pressure for your mom. She seemed to not have the communication skills to weave that in. So and you don't have to get deep into it, but did you feel like a lot of this was coming from their situation Choices that they were making, but they weren't trying to make bad choices. But no. then you ended up a ficus. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, the. Uh, I think I'd be a succulent, right? Like a nice, you know.
0: Well, that's, but, a, that's a sexy word. That's like <laughs> playing say, in yeah. Marvel Universe. I like that. I really? want to be a succulent. Yeah, I don't like them in go. real life, but I like the way it sounds. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Like, uh, yeah, you know, now I'm, I'm thinking about that one. That's an interesting, what would Freud say to that, right?
0: Oh, my word. I don't know, <laughs> but he'd be so high on cocaine, would it matter? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so, you know, I think it was a combination of the, you know, my parents grew up with their own series of traumas and their own experiences that really, uh. Disabled might not be the right word, but sort of inhibited their ability mm, to give yeah. that back to me, right? You know, yeah. you can't really necessarily give something that you weren't given back. You know, we can try and we can really do well in doing that, but there's always going to be things that go missing or the uh, lack of maybe an attunement opportunity that gets lost, you know? And then here comes my story, you know, to make so sense they, of all that.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, so they weren't, you, you never... Mm, I'm just guessing, even how you're telling the story, that you never felt like it was intentional or that they were cruel. No, it was just no. missed. And and in that way, oh, geez, this is a whole different rabbit trail. But the, the idea of, okay, you can experience these traumas, but it wasn't intentional. It's very different than abuse. Your parents weren't trying to abuse you. They were trying to live their life, do the best they can.
1: Uh-huh. And,
0: and for some people, that's important. Because when we talk about, you know, trauma is such a word that we've explored so much more in the last decade than before. Uh-huh. And, and I have known people and I've experienced where I'm like, okay, there's no big trauma. And then I have people trying to explain to me how, well, no, everybody's traumatized. I'm like, well, then that's not very interesting. Uh, that's my first thought but that I certainly had a lot of experiences and narratives that mattered and my parents also did the best they could and they don't have to be the villains, but they were participants in a story that I was taking on feelings and thoughts and creating stories. The other thing I wanted to ask you though was you're talking about being scenery and so tell me how I'm wrong in what I'm picturing as you're talking. When you say that, I picture you fading into the background. Let's not upset the apple cart, as it were. But you weren't just scenery because there was a snap and it's like, I need you to be, I need you to do. And then all of a sudden the plant becomes a boy and has to run over and be the house boy. And then when that's done, disappear again. So it seems like it was a, it, it, just the story feels like a, a combination that feels a bit neurotic to me of like disappear but pay close attention and that seems way harder than just being scenery
1: no i actually have to agree and that actually it feels very validating for you to to, to highlight that you know but that really pairs into a lot of my experience you know it was a, a maintain you know a, a hyper vigilant of of state be very yeah. mindful of what's going on constantly around you you know be sort of on that hairpin trigger so that you do come to life, that you do have that value, then you can, you can be something for that person who calls and, and has a desire for your help. Um, and that's not necessarily the bad thing in the room, right? I think mm-hmm. that has led into a lot of why I find therapy so um, natural in a way, you know, like it just pairs to how I've, I've uh, connected to people for a long time. But through my own therapy, through my own work, through my own understanding of what trauma has taught me, I've allowed myself to disentangle worth from that wanting to help. You know, like I have an inherent worth that is not ever going to change, that's always been there. But it was sort of the the story and the narrative I created from my traumas that encouraged me sort of um, – was that turnover for my engine in a lot of ways that just um, it, I use that story to explain everything, you know, and Mm. a a lot of guys that I've met and worked with over the years have used stories as a way of compartmentalizing, um, minimizing, making sense, denial, you know, Um, it's related so intimately to trauma. That's why I, I really take this sort of, belief of when we understand the story that we've told ourselves about us, when we connect to it, we validate it, we understand why we started telling us, then we get the pin back in our hands. We get to say like, Hey, this is what is really true for me. This is what's always been true. Why would I want or design a story that competes with that one? Well, this is why it makes sense.
0: Well, and, and even when you say that my fear and, and, Oh, see, we're jumping ahead. We're jumping ahead to when we're going to take a break, possibly. But I have to say it because... Fine, you're the oldest child. We can do some birth order stuff with that. Great. Uh, you had certain tendencies that were just in you. Fine. Great. You're able to grow a, a good beard later in life. Fine. Great. <laughs> but the problem is that I I, I desperately hate despise purposefully using the word hate and meaning it when a person goes through those experiences and then feels like they have to react against and they lose the beautiful things that they were built Uh, to enjoy because uh, they have to simply resist i will not just say yes to other people's needs because that means i'm back to being the ficus or the succulent and you're like no 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 that was some of the best part of you that ended up getting twisted into an inappropriate codependent i know we don't use that word anymore it's no longer shiny but it it doesn't all mean that was the bad story and oh man do we i feel like most of us so easily get sucked down a road where we stop honoring the amazing gifts we have that just got tripped up in the bad story
1: mhm uh-huh other men I think you're so right in saying that you know like we we do I guess I don't know if it's in our culture or where it could be a lot of family stuff it could be just even individual stuff but we when we work through traumas it's so tempting to reject everything that encapsulates itself in the trauma like you know uh, maybe some listeners are thinking like hey that's people pleasing right well, yeah. we need a people pleaser. We need to be able to connect. We need to sometimes shelve some of our needs to to uh, be connected to another person, right? You think about healing in relationships or, or following discovery and addiction, right? We need those parts of us to connect, to validate, to build safety, to build intimacy, you know? We have to share in that. But we have gotten into this place where we are so anathema repelling of this trauma that we're shutting down everything that that trauma co-opted that that trauma uh got into made us maybe question about that but we don't do that disentangling work we don't pick apart what is congruent and true and honoring of ourselves you know it's okay
0: can you define disentangling work because i i i i suspect i know what you mean but i could be wrong
1: ah you know that's a when i i, I don't your listeners can't see what i'm doing but i'm really I'm, i feel like i'm just peeling away like rope strands right yeah now.
0: yeah. so nate is pulling things apart with his hands right now as if the various cords of a rope are unraveling into small cords that couldn't hold anything which confuses my brain because now the cord seems weaker <laughs> Because it was tangled and now it's not. And I'm scared for my own soul. What will happen if I disentangle in this work?
1: Mm. Parts of us are going to feel like when we do that disentangling that we're coming apart. You know, we're coming apart at the seams, right? Because we've created the story to rationalize reality. Reality is neater when all those strands are together and it feels stronger it feels like that's the that's the narrative there it makes sense at the time but when we start to unstrand that we can decide which strand of us is the real one which one is the trauma story mm. and i think part of our healing work is to take the strands that mean something to us and and put that into a patchwork put that into um, just as much as I was saying with the, uh, the pin in the hand, right? We can take our old fashioned sewing needles. And now I'm, I'm on <laughs> for your he, listeners. He, he
0: is now yes. sewing with his two right. hands.
1: <laughs> yes. I'm sewing healing together. Um, but we're taking those two, three strands and making the patchwork here. We're, we're creating the, the narrative that has always been, um, and I think by doing that, we make that stronger. But there will be a point where I think in all therapeutic circles where we do need to break down, we do need to allow it ourselves to, to maybe be nurtured, taken care of, supported while we do that separation. Yeah. Because I think you're right. You know, I think you are right in saying like, hey, when we take those strands apart, it looks weaker, it feels weaker, and. We need people to help us take care of ourselves as we do that that part, um, that healing work. We, we got to trust in the, the person in front of us um, to, to be safe and to heal. Um, if we don't, and if we believe that we can do that disentangling work on our own, maybe chances are that uh, we're not safe doing that by ourselves. Maybe our, an addiction will come in just as much as an addiction came in for me. To, to say hey that those spaghetti strands on the f- floor here those strings that you were trying to work on man uh you know that looks weak you know maybe maybe everybody's saying these things about you was real you know and then it's gonna yeah. really feel much more weak
0: but um, I, I I actually love the these <laughs> these mixed metaphors that we're talking in <laughs> uh, it was so funny because I I was just... Uh, hanging pasta for dinner tonight before we started talking and when you were oh, talking yeah. about strands i was just being frustrated uh because i didn't want to put flour on them just wanted to hang them and get in here but i'm i'm picturing you're talking about this the strands that have been woven encapsulate so many stories one strand about who my parents were how they felt mm-hmm. and it usually has we have very specific stories when we break it down that we always remember. Oh, I was at soccer practice at seven years old and blank happened. And those are like the, the stepping stones. Damn, I'm putting yet another metaphor. But anyways, <laughs> these, these are the very specific stories that then create mm-hmm. my narrative and create meaning. But as I unravel it, especially as I encounter the real gospel, not churchianity, but the gospel, I found out that there was a core of who I am, uh. and a core of who God is as a father who, for whom I am perfectly beloved, and there was a strand of who the person and work of Jesus is that gave support to that so I could even believe I could be perfectly beloved. And once the rope narratives were pulled away, Then it was a smelting process where there was iron and steel and gold that it didn't matter what ropes tried to wrap around it. There was still a core that was like, no, this is not like a rope. A rope can support a whole lot of things. And man, have I tried to hang things on the rope of my life? It was strong, but it was flexible and bent and changed and it was nothing like steel and right. it was not as precious as gold mm. and I think that's what was inside of the rope that got unraveled was that so there's there's a way mixed metaphor we got stones, we got rope we got metals
1: or we could start our own forgery here you know?
0: <laughs> that's right welcome <laughs> to the pirate monk foundry <laughs> <laughs>
1: We just need, you know, hammers in the background.
0: You know, oh, I love it's it. beautiful. It's like a Ramstein video. Anyways, <laughs> that's only going to resonate with certain people. But again, it's it's late, and I'm just going crazy with these visuals. And you're giving good ones. So now you're you're creating some stories. Mm-hmm. Go go. That was a way big rabbit trail. <laughs> Tell me where you want to go with where you left off. Ah,
1: you know, so I guess as, as I got older, you know, and the, the, the stories that I was telling myself, um, it, it didn't feel congruent. It didn't feel right. It felt some way shameful of me to be so, you know, self-deprecating, but there was another part of me that felt like it was justified. It was deserved, you know? And right. if I continue to work hard and believe in the story that I didn't work or I didn't deserve that work or the fruits of that labor, then I would have to constantly keep working. And then I could never let myself relax. I could never just be enough because that was the motivation. You know, there was a motivator aspect to that. So those two stories really started to, to bog me down even, even more.
0: So it um, sounds like you're saying, and I am not a generally a naturally shameful person. It sounds like you were feeling shame but you hadn't even done anything wrong. Is that what you're saying? Mhm. That's a really shit sandwich. That's horrible. I'm it so sorry. Hard... Thanks, man. Thank you for for validating. I want to give that kid a hug big time. That's horrible. It was it was
1: hard to to grow up like that, you know, and and parts of it was just some of the the stuff that I grew up in my family. It was you know, how did you maybe challenge some of these perceptions, right? Well, sometimes families are open with their emotions, they're fluid with their emotions. But I grew up in a hardcore German family, you know, like, you do not talk about your feelings. And if you did talk about your feelings, then people would pounce, you know, pounce on you and maybe take jabs at you. And you're feeling that way. Okay, you know, you sissy, or you little girl, you know, Mm -hmm. like, there was this kind of um, this emotions are weakness mentality that I grew up with. So, being sort of more empathic kid, you know, being able to tune in to other people and feel other people, you know, I didn't all of a sudden have an outlet for any of that to be safe. Um, and it's it's hard to to say grow up with that. But you know, part of why I'm I'm on this platform talking to you about it is we all grow up with a story that's rooted in say childhood stuff. A lot of our stuff is is a remnant from from early childhood interactions or early childhood pains that just went unresolved. So the parts of missing in the in the story get filled in. Typically, you know, I find that shame does that talking for us. Shame comes in to do the talking for us because it's it's very you know, as painful as shame is, I really feel like it serves a purpose. It serves a protective element to it. If I can exist and be encapsulated in my shame, well, I have a cure-all for explaining every emotional pain or hurt. You know, I have an out, I have an escape route, you know, so maybe I did make a mistake or maybe I did hurt somebody. Well, now I have shame as a resource, Mm -hmm. you know, that I can just funnel all my intention or or, um, energy i'm I'm assuming
0: what you mean by that is i do something wrong and as long as i feel ashamed well now i can move forward because i felt Uh properly shamed and so now Uh it's useful for me moving forward i feel worse about myself but i have a door to go through to get to the next step instead of just i would say feeling awful but you're still feeling awful so I i don't even know what the right word there is well, and, and I don't know if this
1: rings true with anybody listening, but like for me, it was like this cosmic sort of writing of the scales, you know, like
0: mm, if yeah. I was
1: felt this way and I, I sort of atoned to it or like um, it felt like the, the, the penance or, or what have you. I don't know if that's the right word here, but like it felt justified that like, I would bring myself down that way.
0: Okay. That's actually amazing. Because guilt and shame are usually talked about as these two separate things. Oh, Mm -hmm. guilt, I feel bad about what I did. Shame, I feel bad about who I am. But what you just said, I think, is when I felt guilt that I did something wrong, the scales went thunk over here. And if I felt enough shame, it would lift to an even balance of shit on both sides. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But it's balanced.
1: Yes. And we don't
0: and mm-hmm. and we don't consider wait that balance is bad on both sides it's 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 wounding my soul but it does feel like a balance if i feel guilt i need shame to bring that back to balance i have never thought of that in my life and i've thought a lot about guilt and shame that's mm-hmm. that i need to think about that more that's kind of mind blowing thank
1: yeah like it's uh it's a lesson that i've 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 learned similarly too in and just my my experiences processing you know say guilt you know it's we're taught or at least in therapy that we're encouraged to see guilt as a pro-social emotion you know like the guilt that i feel is is me feeling empathy it's me connecting but when it becomes so intimately linked to shame right i feel an iota of guilt right in my natural tendency the way that my neurons are sort of ground and, and orchestrate it goes immediately towards the shame network
0: mm-hmm. so
1: like i anytime that i felt like maybe not enough maybe not worthy not lovable and maybe i made a mistake here or there it goes oh, i feel bad about that but i deserve that mm-hmm. i deserve that and now woof, we're right back at the scales
0: So that's, but that's such an important thing. The idea that you can put guilt into a category like that is so dangerous because guilt, guilt is a true thing. If I do something wrong, I should, if I don't have a sense of guilt, then we need to check into me being a sociopath. Like it's okay to feel guilty when I hurt someone and that at its best causes me to confess to agree with their version and then to repent, to change my mind of what made that brought me to that place. So fine. Guilt's cool. There's pro-social stuff. However, if I grow up in an environment where I'm getting gaslit all the time or mm. or I have people who are trying to make me bear their sins, to bear their guilt, then all bets are off. It is not a helpful thing and it becomes a very confusing thing cuz I feel the guilt and yet I was not the one who did the sin. And then I still have to bring shame in to balance the scales. And then you mentioned the whole unfairness thing, which seems like a side door release valve when I can no longer keep balancing inappropriate guilt with shame. Then I go straight to I deserve better and I start acting out.
1: Mm, and and now you have my story of high school.
0: Give it to me. I'm listening. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I, uh, I, I took all those stories into, into my high school experience and I, I became super, super, super aware of what I thought everybody was thinking about me. Now, if I have this chorus in my head, this narrative of, of deep guilt and deep shame, then I'm thinking the worst of everybody, you know, like they're, they're judging me. They're going to reject me. So I started to really collapse inward on myself and, um, a lot of my addictive behaviors, you know, started to take root in high school. Um, I would even, at least from my experience, this is congruent for me. I would say shame became in and of itself in a, a secondary addiction where, like, it became so ingrained and so um, uh, just associated with my daily experience Um that it felt almost good in a way to shame myself, which I know sounds backwards. I know that it might sound, you know, funky to say that out loud, but there was a part of me that felt good by that. Like it was so righteous and justified and it made sense for everything. And then I would start to use that to get value and worth. Like if I shamed myself and I wouldn't allow myself to feel good about anything, well, I would be getting the, you know, I was a, uh, huge in, in my school system where like, I had a lot of accolades, a lot of um, really good grades. I was getting, you know, straight fives, which is uh, on the AP courses for college, you know, like I was doing all this good stuff. Uh, but I would never allow myself to have it because I didn't think I deserved it. But then I said, if I allow myself to feel good about it, then I'll stop working so hard. Now we have the cycle, you know, and then addiction just gets in there and says, like, "Hey, man, you want to get out of that? You want to just blow it up and just uh, escape for a couple hours, man?" Well, here you go. Like, so I, I discovered addiction early in in um, in, in high school. Actually, um, I kept it very secret. You know, if nobody, if the real people knew me, the real me, you know, they would reject me, they would not see me as this perfect student, you know, I was varsity, cross-country and track, all the above, well, they're going to start asking questions, then their questions are going to lead to judgments, and, and, you know, I'm just going to feel like I've always felt, but now I'm going to have people confirming it. Well, that's scary as all heck.
0: Um, But but then I assume that those behaviors only justified why you should feel ashamed and keep you in that.
1: Now we have the, my cycle, you know, this, this cycle of addiction that traps people, you know, um, I really see addiction becoming, it starts out as like a freedom road. It's like, this is where I escape, right? This is where I get out of this, this hurt and pain that I've trapped myself in this cycle, but that addiction becomes the cage that traps us into something different. We just take the cycle along in a backpack and now we're stuck in the cage of this and we can't get out because this cage is serving a lot of different, you know, purposes, jobs. It's still sort of a an escape, but we're carrying in on that backpack. We're holding on to these stories, you know.
0: Um, well, from a Christian perspective, let me ask because you're describing a high school version of something that I've walked through with adults, and I'm going to be very vague. I'm not going to pick on the pastor that I'm thinking of who wrote some influential stuff. He wrote about the behaviors of a retired couple who just retired and would enjoy sunsets and picking up seashells. Well, I already kind of blew my cover on that for a lot of people, but he, he described like, what a waste. They got to this point in their life and all they're doing is enjoying sunsets and picking up seashells. In contrast, let me tell you about these two women who until the day, you know, they're old women just engaging in missions work. How amazing and purposeful. And I remember spending years with a particular person who that story was etched in their mind where they said, purpose, 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 and seashells and sunsets are me being selfish and wicked. It was the adult version of, uh, well, as a therapist, I'm sure you've tried to ask people like, well, what just sounds fun to you? And you get the, I have no idea how to answer that. I don't think I've considered that since I was a child, if ever. And then I think of who God is as a perfect father. And I think, wow, if one of my kids said, no, no, I, can, I, I will not even acknowledge that there are joyful parts of me, things that I desire. No, I just got to work more. I need to feel ashamed and be driven. As a dad, I would be mortified. I would be so heartbroken. And yet that is the God that is presented when seashells and sunsets don't make him smile ever. And I'm not talking about having balance, whatever, fine, we can discuss it. But when there's no seashells or sunsets, then we're stuck in that same cycle that says the only thing that makes sense. When you say the only way I could even enjoy this, there was a a type of joy at self-flagellation. If I beat myself up, I feel more worthy of love, never worthy of love, but closer. I don't think anybody ever feels worthy of love on that path. Whereas the other path is God actually wants you to be like, hey, kid, remember how I made you and these moments were so delightful for you? That didn't change. I, I still want that. Come, come away for a minute. I didn't save you so you could join the family business and work seven days a week. I'm not a workaholic and I don't rage on you. Come grab some seashells and smile. All right. So tell me what you're thinking as you're thinking of that teenage version that was learning to be addicted to shame and who God could be but wasn't at that time.
1: Mm. Well, you know, what you just said really spoke to me in that as I started to to look deeper into the my traumas, right, and— um, and to understand the, the narrative that I had been telling myself, you know, you speak to God as like, Hey, you know, can God be happy with picking up the seashells and and just being there and, and being human and taking joy and reverie in that. Well, I realized, you know um, I was trying to do the same thing with my parents. I was trying to present myself in, in ways that, I would receive that affirmation, receive that love. Um, And it wasn't just like picking up the seashells. It was, I need to Mm. show them that I'm worthy of this. Because my parents, you know, my dad wasn't very present in the home. You know, my dad and, and my mom are great people. But as a kid, the way that they would parent would be, you know, you get seen when you achieve. And that's the only time that you get seen. So it wasn't even able to just be a kid in a lot of ways and just kind of like connect and, and do, um, to, to have fun and, and do, do sharing fun, you know, sharing that joy. It was I need to be on a hamster wheel and just keep pumping my hands and arms around and keep trying to achieve and achieve and achieve now throw in that narrative that I was talking about where I'm addicted to shame in a way well I'm never getting the things that I want even when my parents could attune Mm -hmm. to me right because I would go into a very numb state as a kid you know and so if I'm feeling very numb all the time I'm not connected I'm not really attuned to my parents I'm not really attuned to love so even in the moments that they were able to give to me uh, be present for me and and to love me in the ways that I needed. I would do the same thing that I always would. Shut it down. It doesn't make sense. That doesn't. That's not who you are. Nate, keep working. You have to work. Um, and that's the mentality that my dad stilled into me. I saw my dad work, and he worked hard. He did a really good job at what he did. But he said that work was the most important thing. You know that you could you could be. Is a hard worker, and so a lot of that just got into me, got ingrained into me, um, and so the weight of that story was lifted and simultaneously validated um, through addiction. It just it that's how it works, you know. Like addiction creates the shame that it thrives on, and if it addiction? creates more emotion, wait, wait,
0: don't move on, don't move on from that. <laughs> Addiction creates the shame that it thrives on. That's that's such a, mm, like a twisting, vine-choking, life-tragic mm-hmm. feeling.
1: Mm-hmm. Feels like it, doesn't it?
0: It's a self-perpetuating thing that it plants the seeds yes. and it keeps watering it until the tendrils wrap around every precious part of a heart. Mm-hmm. and just keeps choking it out.
1: Yeah. That's 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 how I feel. You know, that's that's you know, you're summarizing it just how I feel, you know. It's like a um have you seen those self-sustaining terrariums, you know, you mm-hmm. put in like it's like the perfect ingredient for self-sustaining, you know, like it's just encapsulated. You're stuck in that. And yeah, you're it's a it's a life, it's a self-propagating thing shame begets the sh- shame creates the um the addiction and the addiction creates the shame you know but it's so useful and versatile until it's until it's not and it, you know i can make the argument it's never been right you're you're right. shying away from your authentic self your vulnerable self and and your intimate self when we engage in addictive behaviors maybe even from the gecko but as a kid You know, it was such a shot of life and difference, but it was the, it was creating my very shame of saying, Hey, you know what? You're not this perfect kid, right? You're not this, um, golden child or the good boy, right? You're bringing down more people by doing these things. You're creating more of a burden and that just shuts you down. It just drains you more and more, um, I was in a recovery circle and a fellow said, you know, good way to think about addiction is the more that you drink from its bottle, the, the more that it drinks out of you. Mm. And that one stuck with me because that's, mm. that's how I see addiction operating and the guys that I treat in my own experiences. It's addiction is taking more out of you than it could ever give back. And now it's just this this uh, band aid over a gushing, bleeding wound. Um, and it, we're still reliant on it. We really are mm. trying to depend and attach to the addiction itself.
0: It's a, um, yeah, it's a laughing band aid. It's mm. a band aid that mocks the fact that it will not mm-hmm. ever heal the wound.
1: Yeah, mocks is such a powerful word, man. It's like it just laughs at it. It's like oh, this feeble attempt for you to to feel a modicum of, of better, right? It yeah. just laughs at it. It's and hard, then it,
0: and then it invites you to put another one on tomorrow. Hey, yeah. there's more,
1: and I'll, I'll see you tomorrow too. Yeah, you know? I arg- I
0: I already know you'll come to me, mm-hmm. you weak ass boy. Mm-hmm. Never a man, always a child. Mm.
1: Right our shame feels very uh, like it's, it's a old part of us that convinces us that we're very young. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that's just, that's, that's how it operates. That's how it, how it, um how it works inside of an addiction. Um, it just keeps pushing us towards using that until it stops working so good. Mm-hmm. And then we have to push it up a notch. We got to push it up a notch. And then suddenly we are completely incongruent to our values, completely incongruent to our faith and our belief systems. The the vows that we've made for ourselves suddenly are suspect. And then who are we? Well, I got this mirror, this shame mirror, that's showing me who have, I've always been, and now it's confirmed yet again. When I start, I started losing relationships. I started. Um, putting myself in a lot of jeopardizing situations, the more that I ended up using alcohol, the, the worse I put myself into a position, you know? And that led me through college. That led me through grad school until um, I, uh, I'm so grateful that I, I met somebody um, who stood by me and helped me recognize that the shame that I thought I was was not who I, who I really am.
0: Um, Now, what, what, uh, looking at the time, we, this, this needs to be a three hour Joe Rogan (laughs) podcast. Uh, anyways, at that point, and we're skipping over, I, I appreciate how you, you're getting us to where we need to go by the end of our time. (laughs) But how, like, I know how I came to see that. And it was, it was very much through, seeing the gospel through a different lens, but that's not necessarily how that person showed you that. So what, what was the lens that they held up that you saw this differently? Mm
1: -hmm. So this, this person is my wife. She became my wife. Um, and she helped me, uh, like actually accept love for myself. Um, and this, the story behind that is, you know, I like a, a lot of us listening, we had a rock bottom, you know, we had that rock bottom and she helped me to see it.
0: After you're married or is this dating time? This is dating times, you know. Okay. And uh, I, am, am I assuming that Ari's name is Ariana?
1: Ari-Annie.
0: Ari-Annie? Uh-huh. With an E yep. at the end. Arianny. Yep. All right. I like to declare strong and wonderful women in the lives of mm. men for who they are. So Ariani you're dating and you hit some rock bottom. What happened? What did she do? How did she show you this mirror for your true self? She, she was, she
1: was not repelled by the, the say my emotions. Right. And she was the first person that I could be vulnerable with and, and didn't feel like, the judgment was there or the the rejection was there it was just the pureness about that
0: wait hold the hell on <laughs> most guys would say she's not repelled by my behavior you just said she was not repelled by my emotions that mm-hmm. seems significant please explain that more
1: so like at the, the start of this man like it was this um this I was a very feelings kid. I was a very feelings oriented person. And um, I grew up and the times that I was vulnerable, that I reached out on somebody, namely my parents. um, Sissy. Bingo. Like these old, old stories came in and it really, it shut me down. It put me into this anti-vulnerable, you know, do not be intimate. Do not, but I, I I created a story to say my feelings are too much for people, my emotions are, are way too much, and they are just going to repel people. They're going to judge me for it. They're going to reject me for it, not accept me for it. Um, and so I took that chance with with my wife. You know, uh, at the time my uh, my part well, she's always my partner, right? But my uh, my girlfriend at the time. And, and she was there, you know, and I, uh, I had to learn to trust that the more emotional that I was able to be, the, the more, um, uh, she would lean in mm. and, and not do the things that my shame was actually telling me. She, um, and, uh, she was just the person to, to guide me through big therapeutic changes in my life. Um,
0: and you were, went- you were experiencing that the opposite of addiction is connection is intimacy not stop doing a behavior right oh my gosh i love that she showed you that immediately was oh this is the longing of my heart
1: yeah yeah i got lucky you know my friend i got i got lucky and um and uh you know if i didn't have that if I, uh, i you know going beyond that if i didn't have an opportunity to be vulnerable. And if she wasn't there to just listen and love me through it, you know, I think my, my addiction would have taken me and, you know, beyond thinking, I think I know, um, I was on a, on a bad path and I, uh, she helped me realize something, you know, like this is to this day, one of the core beliefs of, of how I relate to the world and how I I see counseling is, um, that, if I could be the guy that I needed at the time when I was a little kid, when I was a teenager, through my college years, through my grad school years, if I could be that guy for other people, then I'm communicating right back to me. I'm talking to myself and the ways that I needed somebody to talk to. And that really changed the, the game for me on how I want to connect to people, how I need to connect to people. Um, I base it off of how would I want and need somebody in this position? Well, you know, I get it. I've, I've been through therapy in the past and I, I was a real jerk. You know, I was a real uh, saucy one. Um, and a lot of times, you know, um, because I was believing the story, you know, I was believing the narrative and not seeing that somebody in front of me wants to help me.
0: And so it's- this is the is that the it, core of what self-parenting means for you?
1: Yes, it is. Self-parenting is a, um, a way for us to provide those needs that we might not have gotten in our childhood. It's our ways of, of showing up for that kid in, the say, the traumatic memory, uh, mm-hmm. making him feel validated, connected to, and being the parent that we we needed at that time, um I I just see that operating so, so, so helpfully in recovery circles, you know, because we can't go back and rewrite history. We don't have that power, you know. Um if I could, you know, maybe I'd hit up the nineteen sixties and and you know, just live out my hippie fantasy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I mean, let's let's pause because we, when we get confused from our our childhood hurts, we keep trying to have relationships, having people uh, meet the child's needs, even though you are an adult mm-hmm. man, you are not the child, you will never be the child again. But even in our conversation, there was that moment where it's like, oh, we got to pause, and it was like felt emotional for me to think about that kid. And that was not me feeling emotional about you now. I wasn't thinking, oh, poor guy that I'm looking at on the screen. I was thinking about that kid and going, damn it. I wish I was there. I want to give him a hug and be like, dude, you're okay. And for, for us to learn, I am not that kid. I can never be that kid. However, I can have compassion for him. I, In my mind, in my heart, I can say, I want to give you a hug, but I'm not you anymore, but I love you, and that was hard. Mm-hmm. But I'm not you. I'm someone else, and this is okay now. I am loved. I am beloved.
1: Mm-hmm. You can help that kid understand that he grows up. He grows up and he can help take care of him. He could be there to, to meet his needs, help him be accountable for that. Um, I see reparenting as a way of, of rescuing in a lot of different sort of facets, that kid that's stuck in the trauma, that cannot get out of the trauma. And the things that he told himself to make sense of the trauma are these last vestiges before he can finally rejoin the parent, us. You know, us as adults.
0: Um, So for skeptics, though, let's address how it's it's the exact opposite as we think. If I go back to my childhood, I'm simply indulging and staying in the past where that's not true. The person who won't address it will stay in the past because they don't acknowledge it versus moving past the past because they're acknowledging it. Bingo. Bingo. And brain spotting uh, is important for this. Take us there. (laughs) So I
1: like to do something uh, called brain spotting, you know, uh, really cool trauma technique, pretty similar to EMDR, but um, it helps us sort of connect somatically to trauma, feel things through our bodies connected very intimately to that source of trauma. And as we gain insight and awareness into the emotions of this trauma memory, the, the feelings and sensations next to this trauma memory. I like to lead fellas that I'm working with through a reparenting experience because they're in it, they're feeling it, they're connected to that kid. And through a guided meditation that I like to use, I lead guys towards being the parent in that trauma. If they could see this kid, see that kid, maybe interfere or, or um, or block or shelter or or validate that this or kid protect. existed. Protect, protect. Yeah. bingo. Protect such a good word. Protect this kid from the pain, from uh from that hurt. It goes even a step beyond that and saying his hurt is okay, that the world hurt him, that this trauma has hurt him, and this guy, you are present to it. You're the dad or the mom that you needed at that time that could hear your story that knows what it's been like to be in there. And I like to invite guys that I'm working with to connect intimately to that kid, almost like an inner child experience and bring the kid back with them as they come up from the brain spotting trauma processing. So that as they're bringing up layers coming back into the room that the kid has, is back in the heart where he belongs, where he's loved and he's nurtured and he's felt. Um, and he, most importantly, he's safe again. And he can realize that he's safe because he grew into you. You're there. You're present for him and you're attuned. Um, I've just seen such tremendous you know, growth out of it because um, it, it 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 bonds to that somatic processing, that feeling involved to it.
0: And for those of you that are listening, and you heard Nate use, like, the words inner child, and you thought, well, fucking hell, this is just some new age shit going on on the Pirate Monk podcast. I would just remind you that perhaps you have narratives that are being drawn in crayon by a six-year-old that you are a slave to. Hmm. Uh-huh. And this is about you realizing that you are the adult and you don't need the seven-year-old to tell you who you are anymore because you have much deeper voices and the word inner child is not a slave to new age hippie stuff in Boulder.
1: <laughs> it doesn't have to be. I think we can create that in the meaning. Uh, you know, we're meeting mannequin creatures for a reason we can make a meaning out of say an inner child and if we choose to to label it as the hippy dippy stuff right You know, maybe maybe so you know but look at what that does for you if yeah. your skeptic comes in and maybe this is the the thing that the listeners need maybe this is the thing that's going to finally uproot them from that crayon drawing so that they can live in reality that they can be feeling uh their emotions better attuned to partners and kids, right? Mm -hmm. We gotta sometimes take a leap of faith. We gotta trust in something that's different, but we can give it the meaning that makes sense to us. So if it's not the inner child, we can say this is our vulnerable self. This is uh, the image of us when we lost a, a, a part of us to trauma, or we lost our intimacy, we lost our vulnerability, or we lost our authenticity.
0: Or maybe at the simplest, these are the stories that, as I think about it, I've been telling myself is who I am since I was in the sixth grade. Uh That is what you are talking about with going back and addressing that. Uh And so, fine, throw out all the phrases, all the ideas, but if you still have same things you're thinking about yourself that you've been thinking since you were in the fifth or sixth or seventh grade— that's where we need to take the crayon away mm-hmm. and put a pen in your hand to rewrite this story. And hopefully from a foundation that is more secure than anything you've experienced thus far.
1: And, and reparenting and, and brain spotting does a great job at that.
0: It just, All right. So where do people like go? Okay. Nate for today, by the way, this is Nate Geyer, everybody. We didn't, I planned on doing more of the, anyways, we've just been talking. Uh, Nate is, is a he works with Begin Again Institute, Boulder Recovery. Uh, you're a man that's been involved with a lot at, from a young age. I can't believe how young you are. I won't tell them that you're only 17, but <laughs> he'll be graduating from high school this year. And uh, no, he's not. <laughs> How did they get a hold of you, listen to more, learn more about this stuff? Because this is, this is important stuff.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, um, I work for Begin Again Institute in Boulder Recovery. Um, we're a sex and intimacy disorder treatment center in, in Colorado. Um, and, um, that's a, that's a good avenue to connect with me. If you're, if you're curious with, um, with inner child stuff, reparenting, brain spotting, or just need a, a place to, to come and heal. You know, we're an amazing facility and I really believe in the work that we're doing. Um, I really believe in the work that I'm doing, you know, and part of what I think achieves therapeutic success is that you have people believe in what they're doing and believe that this is, uh, this is possible because they've experienced it themselves. So I really like to talk about my experiences in and, and therapy, and I like to talk about my journey. And um, And there's other men out there that do too, you know. Um, so but where, I, they, uh, where do they go to check these things out? Um, so you can check these things out at BeginAgainInstitute.com. Uh, we have BoulderRecovery.com. And then uh, my email is, is pretty simple. Um, it's Nate at BeginAgainInstitute.com. So um, I'd love to take, you know, questions, insights, or just uh, reflections. You know, I, uh, I believe I'm a part of a larger community um, and I like to be available towards that larger community.
0: Awesome. Man, I feel like we were not even starting this story <laughs> and we jumped ahead, uh, but I loved it. I appreciate it. Listeners, if you have comments, questions, thoughts, Uh, critiques, send them to pirate monk podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And, uh, I, this is, this is it. So until next week, uh, I'm Aaron and this is Nate Geyer. (laughs) And we are your pals here on the pirate Monk podcast. The pirate monk podcast is produced by members of the Samson
1: society. Send your feedback or questions to PirateMonkPodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit SamsonSociety.com.